You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. Both ancient questions and contemporary questions. It addresses ancient questions such as who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? Is there a higher power? Who made everything? Who's in charge? Mankind has pondered those kind of questions for all of history, but it also addresses modern day questions and problems, things you may see in the headlines tomorrow. You have questions about gender, sexuality, roles of men and women, marriage. Genesis addresses that. You have questions about racism, ethnicity, prejudice, justice. Genesis addresses that. You have questions about abortion, assisted suicide, the sanctity of life. Genesis addresses those. Genesis also gives us a theology of work. It gives us a theology of sin, a theology of covenants, a theology of the kingdom of God, and so much more. There's so many different items that we'll get to cover as we make our way through this book. But a third reason we should study Genesis is, it, is because it gives us a proper perspective. It gives us a proper perspective. Genesis shows us that the Bible, this entire universe, the grand plan of redemption is ultimately not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's really about God. We're, cert- we're certainly important characters in this cosmic drama, if you will, but the leading actor is God himself. He's the ultimate focus and hero of it. And Genesis reminds us well of that. And along the way, I hope we'll begin to see why that's actually a really good thing, that God is the main focus and not us. <clears throat> and I'll give a fair warning from the beginning that there is no timetable for when we'll end this book. We're beginning today, and we'll end whenever we end, or if the Lord returns first, whichever one happens. There's 50 chapters, and today, as James just read, we'll only make it through the first two verses out of 50 chapters. But I say that to encourage you to be reading in Genesis yourself during the week. We're going to be setting up camp in this book for a good while, and you'll benefit from it so much more if you're thinking through it and praying through it sometime Monday through Saturday. And so when we come here on Sunday, your heart and mind is already fully engaged and ready uh, to digest God's Word. And so I'd encourage you in that. Now, since this is the very first week of our study, it is necessary to make a few opening remarks about the book as a whole that will help us understand it going forward. Genesis is an origin story. It's the tale of beginnings, literally the beginnings of beginnings. The name Genesis means origin or beginning. And I hold to the traditional view that Genesis is historically accurate. And when I say traditional view, I mean the view that followers of God have held for thousands of years. There's, it, it's as traditional as you get. And that is that the Genesis account is not mythology. It's not an analogy or allegory. As strange and fantastic as some of the things are in it, we believe that they are true and historical. But something to take note of, Genesis is history, but it is a specific history with a specific purpose. Genesis is a specific history written with a specific purpose. And I'll explain. It's been held for thousands of years that Moses was the writer of the Pentateuch or the Torah, 
Those names refer to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. <coughs> and in a way, you could think of them as being a five-part series. You can't really understand one fully without reading the others as well. That's why none of them have any kind of introduction. They just begin where the preceding book left off. And it's a series of books that are all connected and meant to tell a specific story. The story of God choosing to bless and redeem mankind through one specific family line. Of course, we learn a whole lot more along the way, but that's the foundational plot line that we find running from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50. And we'll see that clearly in the structure of the book of Genesis. Moses, as the writer, obviously is not intending to give us an exhaustive history of everything that happened in the ancient world. Consider this for a moment. The book of Genesis has 50 chapters. The first 11 chapters cover thousands of years of what scholars call primeval history. It covers the opening millennia of history, but actually tells us very little about what happens in those thousands of years on the earth besides the flood, the Tower of Babel, and it gives us some lists, some genealogical lists. But then the remaining 39 chapters, or 80% of the book, only covers four generations of one specific family line. So don't miss this. 11 chapters spans thousands of years and generations, dozens of generations, but then the remaining 39 chapters focuses in on only four generations of one family line, beginning with Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and finally ends with Joseph. And so Moses wrote this book with a specific purpose and focus on God blessing a particular people, and the book is structured around tracing that family line. In fact, there's 10 sections in the book of Genesis that begin with the same Hebrew word, toledot, which means generations. Ten times we find sections in Genesis with this uh, label. For example, Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 5-1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. And on and on it goes. So that's something helpful to remember. Even though there's a lot of meat in the first few chapters, the main purpose of the book is discovered through the rest of the story. Well, there's about a hundred other things I could say about the book of Genesis, but I think that gives us a solid enough foundation to begin with. So now let's actually turn to Genesis 1.1. Most of you know it by heart, <coughs> but it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the opening phrase of the entire Bible. So God's revealed, inspired word, the first sentence is this one short sentence. In English, it's only ten words. In Hebrew, it's these seven words, Bereshit, bara, Elohim, et hashemayim, ve'et ha'aretz. That's your Hebrew lesson for the day. And, and those are important words, as we'll see in a minute. And there's something genius about the simplicity yet enormity of that phrase. I'm not sure if it's possible to make a more epic statement with such few words than this. That in just seven Hebrew words, there's this much truth contained. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Every word of this sentence is worth our consideration. In the beginning, God. I think it's helpful to divide the sentence after the word God. In the beginning, God. The beginning of what? The passage suggests that it's referencing the beginning of time as we know it. Time is part of creation. Every part of creation is completely bound in time. Everything in the universe is constrained by seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, and years. Everything experiences life as a series of chronological events. We can't conceive of anything outside of past, present, or future. But here it says, in the beginning, God. It doesn't say in the beginning of God. It says in the beginning, God. In other words, in the beginning of everything, there was something already there. There was something that was eternal, timeless, and self-existent, and Moses calls him God. The Hebrew word used for God is Elohim. It's not a personal name like Yahweh that the Israelites would, would later use for God. Instead, it's a general term that could have referred to any deity in the ancient world. But Moses uses this word in such an emphatic, straightforward manner. In the beginning, God. There's no idea or possibility of there being any other gods or deities. There is only one true God. In fact, in the book of Genesis, there is no mention of any other gods or idols being worshipped until all the way down in chapter 31, when it mentions Rachel stealing Laban's household idols. Genesis clearly is meant to emphasize that there is only one God. There aren't even lesser or weaker gods. No, there is only one existing eternal God. And consider when Moses would have recorded this, this would have been a pretty unique theology in the ancient world. Virtually every other nation or culture was polytheistic, meaning they worshipped multiple gods. Moses himself was raised in the Egyptian culture, which worshipped dozens of gods. The nations they encountered in the promised land worshipped multiple gods. They worshipped the god of the harvest, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the rain, the god of this or that. Even think of the gods of Greek or Roman mythology. Multiple gods associated with their own different elements or domains, but the people of God are and always have been completely monotheistic. There is only one God, and he isn't the God of the moon or the God of the sun or the God of anything else because he's the God who existed before all that. He isn't confined or constrained by anything. Rather, he is the God who existed before anything else existed. And we'll see later on in Scripture that God continually calls his people to maintain this same distinction in their worship. <clears throat> One of the most important scriptures to the Israelites was the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. And it begins with the phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The emphasis being that there is one God. Or think of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Or the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carven image that is an idol. They're not to give credence to any other deity because there is only one. And they aren't to associate God with anything earthly because he is the God who created it all. There is no idol or image that could be made that could represent his glory and person. So in the beginning, God. 
Everything else in the universe has a beginning, but God does not. Psalm 90 verse 4 affirms this, saying, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everything else has a starting point, but God does not. Everything else is dependent on forces outside of itself, but God is not. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is self-dependent. He is so utterly different than creation. So in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Remember, this is the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter, the very first verse. <coughs> Imagining, <coughs> imagine opening the Bible for the first time with absolutely zero prior knowledge of God or Christianity. I know if you've grown up in church, that's really hard to do. Imagine knowing nothing. But if you were coming to the Bible in that way, every single word would teach you something. Every word would reveal to you a whole new world of meaning. And here in Genesis 1, it'd be telling you what is God like. And here in Genesis 1-1, it portrays a God who thinks and a God who acts. This isn't some impersonal force or power. This God is alive. He has personhood. He thinks. He acts. And most importantly in this verse, he creates. And interestingly enough, we'll see over the course of chapter 1, there's a strange absence of any mention of a big bang or a random heating up of particles that somehow turns into stars and planets and eventually life. Now, I'm sure 99% of you in here today have grown up with the belief that there is a higher power who created everything rather than a big bang, but also want us to know why we believe that. I don't want you to just believe things. I want you to know why you believe what you say you believe. Because if your belief has no basis, then what's the chance that someone won't come along and persuade you that something else is true? And so when it comes to creation, we first believe God created everything because the scripture tells us that is the case. Obviously, Genesis chapter 1 lays it out clearly how God created everything that exists. Psalm 33.6 also tells us, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. God himself says in Isaiah 45.12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. And of course, it's a matter of faith as well. After all, none of us were around to see God create, so we're getting it secondhand. It's a matter of faith, so it's fitting that Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we believe according to the testimony of Scripture, but we also believe according to rational thought. We believe according to the brain that God gave us, that something doesn't come from nothing. Only nothing comes from nothing. Something had to make all of this. And it's not only a, a something, it's an intelligent, purposeful something, a someone. The intricacies of our planet alone, not to mention the entire universe, should be enough to convince us that some being, some person had to create all of this. Life doesn't just happen by chance. The perfect tilt of the earth, the speed of the earth's rotation, the speed that the earth revolves around the sun, the perfect gravitational force, 
the constant regular changing of night and day, of season to season, the perfect atmosphere for sustaining life. It requires an act of rebellion against all rational thought to think that all this could come by random chance. Romans 1.19 hits the nail on the head. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. See, to deny that there is a creator God is to deny truth and reality itself. So in the beginning, God created. (coughs) Now there's something else to note about God creating. And it's that, and this is found with a little help from the original Hebrew, the word translated created is the Hebrew word bara. And this verb is never used in the Bible outside of God being the subject. So the type of creating being described here in Genesis 1 is something that only God himself can do. He is the only one that can truly create, to call something into existence that prior did not exist. We can't do that. We cannot create like God. We can build, we can make, we can form, we can mold and manipulate and transform, but we only do so using materials and elements that already exist. But God is God, and he's not limited like we are. He creates and calls into existence things without any material or resources needed. As we'll see next week, he simply speaks it into existence. (coughs) This God is so unlike us. And what did he create? It says God created the heavens and the earth. In the ancient way of understanding, this phrase, heavens and earth, simply means he created everything. The heavens was everything above our head. The earth was everything below our feet. So it just means everything. God created everything, which also implies again that before that, there was nothing. But then look at verse 2. Look at how it describes the primitive earth. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I'll admit that growing up, I didn't really know what to do with verse 2. Um, I think I probably just ignored it. Verse 1 makes sense. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you get to verse 3, and you get the, the nice orderly days of creation. But what about verse 2? Again, I doubt that there's too many evolutionists in here this morning or those who believe in just random chance. But notice that even before the six days of creating where God makes the stars, the heavens, the earth, or the, uh, the land and living creatures, he's already created one thing. It says the earth, this earth, this planet that we are currently living on. We're not a result of a one in a billion chance of some primordial soup turning into life and eventually creating life on this random planet. There's nothing random about the universe at all. God specifically created earth first as the home for mankind and the place where his grand plan of redemption would be carried out. He created earth before he even created the sun and the moon and the stars. And it's this same earth that will be refined and restored one day, and God will make his home with his people on it. 
But in its primitive state, it says the earth was without form and was void. This same phrasing is found elsewhere in the Bible to describe a scene of really desolation and chaos. The earth is uninhabitable. There is no order. It's completely empty and devoid of life. But what we'll see in the next, uh, next week when we look at the days of creation is that God will spend three days forming what once had no form and three days filling what once was void. He'll bring order from chaos, he'll bring light to the darkness, and he'll place boundaries on the deep waters. And there's a lot of powerful imagery used in these words by Moses. He says darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness, even since ancient times, has always been associated with the absence of life. There is no warmth, there's no illumination, there's nothing to sustain life. And then for ancient writers, the ocean or deep waters had this connotation of chaos. The ocean was fierce and untamable. Deep waters were full of mystery and danger. And so what's being described here in this primitive earth is desolate, chaotic, uninhabitable. But notice it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. How fitting is it that even in the very beginning, when there was chaos, there was still God. Even when there was disorder and darkness, there was still God. There is this earth, formless and void, full of disorder, yet there is God's Spirit hovering, uh, about to unleash this perfect, divine, creating power of the one true God and transform what's formless and void into the greatest display of His glory and majesty that's ever been. And these first two verses are just such a perfect setup for the rest of creation. So imagine for one second, again, you have no prior knowledge of God, the Bible, or anything. Just from these first two verses, what kind of God is this? First, he is a God who is. He is the God who is. Similar to God saying, I am, I am. (laughs) I'm the great I am. He is the living God. He is the eternal God. He was there in the beginning, but he himself has no beginning. He's self-existent and self-sufficient. And secondly, he's the God who acts. He isn't a passive God. He acts and he creates. And thirdly, it shows us he's a God who will bring order out of chaos. And remember, Genesis is not about you. It's not about us. It's ultimately about God. But that's really important for us to know because who God is directly affects us and what we should do, what life is about. So also think about these truths from these verses for your own life today. We serve a living and personal God. For those who don't follow God, this should be a great source of fear and worry. There is a God. This is his creation. He calls the rules. What is your standing with him? Will you be able to stand up under his judgment? You may be able to distract your mind with the busyness of day-to-day life, but is there not a gnawing question somewhere in the corner of your mind that asks what comes after this life, and am I ready for it? As Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But on the other hand, for the followers of God, it is the greatest source of confidence that we serve a living and personal God. He's not like the dead, empty idols or false gods that can't hear, that can't speak, that can't think. He is a living, personal God who is actively involved with his creation. 
we can know him, and most importantly, we can be known by him. He's so personal that he makes us his children. We can call him our father. So what a source of comfort that God sees you, he hears you, and he cares for you. He's also the God who acts. He does not sit passively by and just watch his creation go about its business. He's not detached and disinterested. Instead, he's intimately involved with his creation. After all, it's by the word of his power that the whole universe is held together moment by moment. He actually cares about his creation. He also cares about you individually. To think that God created everything, the mountains, oceans, rivers, valleys, the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars. He's so great and majestic, yet he can know you and care for you on a personal level as well. He's also the God who brings order from chaos. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Does your life ever feel chaotic? Does your life ever feel out of control? Does it ever feel like there's no way you can keep everything together on your own power? And the good news is that even in the midst of chaos and disorder, God is still there. He is the God who is. And so when we read Genesis 1-1, we don't just have to take it as merely a fact that God created everything. But we can actually read that simple verse as an act of worship and worship God for the fact that he is the eternal living God of creation. And we can rest assured that he is still the same God today, a personal, active, and present God. And so what a great God that we serve. And that's just from the first two verses of this book. And there's so much more to come, but we'll save that for next week. So would you join me in prayer?